We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. For several years now, I've been helping schools implement trauma-informed strategies in their schools. Now, as students are starting to come back to school, the need for this is greater than ever. Here's the thing. I'm not a social worker, and I don't pretend to be. So my training really focuses on practical strategies that you can implement in your school without making your teachers feel like they have to be social workers also. I help schools implement trauma-informed strategies so that fewer discipline referrals, fewer dysregulated students, and a calmer, more focused atmosphere. And the best thing is, this training aligns perfectly with ESSER funding, so you don't have to take it out of your school budget. My clients report that they have better sense of how to help their students without adding another thing to their plate. Go to jethrojones.com trauma to read more about it, and let's schedule a chat. That's jethrojones.com trauma. Welcome to Transformative Principle. Today, I am honored to have Dr. Jeff Temple, who is the Seeley and Smith Chair of Violence Prevention at the University of Texas Medical Branch, as well as a licensed psychologist and the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention. His research focuses on the prevention of interpersonal, community, and structural violence and has been funded through the National Institute of Justice, National, National Institutes of Health, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He recently co-edited a book on the adolescent dating violence, is an associate editor for the Journal of Primary Prevention, and is on the editorial boards of four other scientific, scientific journals. 
Dr. Temple recently co-chaired the Texas Task Force on Domestic Violence and served on the board of directors of the Texas Psychological Association. Locally, he served for seven years as the vice president of the Galveston Independent School District Board of Trustees, and his work has been featured on CNN, New York Times, Time Magazine, Washington Post, and even the satirical website, The Onion. Jeff, welcome to Transformative Principle. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jethro. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, um, we originally connected when we had you on the Cybertraps podcast, which if you're listening to this, you probably have heard me talk about that podcast a number of times. And we had you on that podcast. And I said, man, if there's anybody that needs to talk to our school principals <laughs> about things, it's you. And so I'm excited to talk with you um, about that today. So um, talk to us a little bit about first what the Center for Violence Prevention is and what it is that you focus on. Yeah, thank you for that question. We, uh, we're excited. We're in our third year, basically, and uh, uh, really focusing on preventing all forms of violence. So it's interpersonal violence, bullying, uh, sexual assault, electronic sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, elder abuse, child abuse, and then also more uh, things like structural violence, where we want to work on giving people livable wages and affordable housing and access to health care and, and look at some of the things like uh, uh, systemic racism and discrimination. So our, our goal is to really promote health and prevent all forms of violence. And we do that by research, by working with community agencies, whether it's schools or YMCA, stuff like that, to uh, to really hope that they are focused on, attend to, and, and, and work on preventing violence with their community. And, and then also working with clinicians and students in making sure that violence prevention is part of the curriculum. And, and then evaluate things like domestic violence uh, uh, shelters and, uh, and, and programs to make sure that they are effective. Yeah, really fascinating. So you're covering a very broad range of, of topics and issues. And, you know, we could we could go down many of those paths. And I think one of the ones that I thought would be most beneficial for my particular audience is um, helping kids understand how violence happens on social media and electronically so that they can have some tools in their toolbox to to know how to help kids when they're experiencing this. Because um, we know that it happens. And can you talk first about the prevalence of, of abuse online and, and what that looks like? Yeah, it's quite extensive, really. If you look at things like bullying and cyberbullying and looking at that specifically, we know that cyberbullying is probably about 15 to 25 percent of kids report that they have been cyberbullied or that they cyberbully themselves. And uh, we also know that it's highly related to in-person bullying. And that, that's one thing that will, will be a common theme throughout our discussion is that the line between online and offline worlds is really blurred. So what happens online is often similar to what happens offline. And kids don't really, and you know, this generation that came up with social media and computers, they don't differentiate between the two worlds where old folks like me and you might look at the difference. Like, you know, that happens online. That's whatever. This is in person. This is real. There is no differentiation with kids. So if you're a bully online, you're likely to be a bully in person. If you're uh, abusing your boyfriend or girlfriend in person, you're likely to be doing the same thing online. It, it, it's different though, in terms of, and I'm not, I, I promise to get back to your specific question, but you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different of an animal 
uh, in, in a sense that if you're the perpetrator, if you bully someone, or even if you're just a jerk and you don't know that you're bullying them, and you, you don't get to recognize the nonverbal reactions that you would in person, right? Where someone looks disgusted and you can walk that back if you're in person. But if you're doing it online, you know, you, you may not know that you're hurting that other person. So you might, may unintentionally be bullying. There's also the, uh, uh, the fact that it lives on forever. So if you are mean online or text someone mean, that's kind of there in perpetuity. And so it could kind of re-bully or re-abuse uh, as many times as possible. Of course, another one is that it's a billion people get to witness you be bullied or abused oftentimes if it's not through text, if it's through social media, whereas in person, it's not like that. And, and then finally, and probably the most important one, is that online can be can be anonymous, right? So the, the person who's being bullied might not know who's bullying them or something. So there's a lot of differences there. And uh, what we see is is from a, a consequence standpoint is that it's really similar to offline stuff. So same type of host of negative problems is associated with being a victim, you know, depression, anxiety, suicidality, PTSD, poor academic performance poor relationship building, poor attachment, all that stuff is related. And it's both online and offline. And then for perpetrators, we see a lot of the same risk and protective factors that oftentimes the perpetrators of, say, cyberbullying or bullying are often being bullied themselves, or whether it's through a sibling or a parent or the older student or something to that effect. So let's talk a little bit about that unintentional bullying, because I think that that's a an issue that many educators would would have concern with that one of the things we've said over time in education is that bullying is an intentional repeated behavior and um you kind of just blew my mind when you said people are unintentionally bullying people so help us parse that to be honest i sort of thought of it as i was as i was talking and in, in the sense that you don't get to <laughs> see that not we won't yeah. tell anybody yeah it's <laughs> But it's true, right? Like, I'll talk about myself kind of anecdotally. I'm sort of irreverent. And when I'm with a group of people, I can be irreverent and kind of a uh, jokey, sometimes um, uh, self-deprecating, but also deprecating person. But I know how to pull back and when to pull back, right? If someone is clearly offended by something I say or the that uh, I'm not getting the right response I, I would think I'd get, yeah. I pull back and adjust how I am. On the internet, if, if I bring those same principles, I don't get that that instant check on me being a jerk, even if I'm trying to be funny, right? So I might continue on thinking that that's having the intended effect when in reality, it's it's making people uncomfortable, upset, sad, and I, don't, my, I might not have a, a way to know that. So I think there's a big difference there. Well, yeah. And the thing that I'm thinking about with that is that, so in the mastermind that I run for principals, we're reading a book called Humor Seriously, which is about using humor at work. And they have a little quiz that they break down what kind of comedian you are, but comedian is like professional. So, you know, lightweight comedian. And so the, the two that they use are two of the four they use are sniper which is someone who like will take pot shots and you don't mind making people upset by your jokes because you're going for the funny. And then the other one is stand up where you don't mind doing that also, but instead they call it being aggressive in your joke telling, but instead of um, you just taking pot shots, you can take it as well as give it out. And in a, 
in a room in a physical space, you can take and give like that. But online, like you were saying, you can't. And that's where I think that it's really, really interesting and also very confusing for people because they, you know, we for so long have thought, well, bullying is something intentional, but you can be a jerk repeatedly online. And and what I've often said to people is there are bullies and there are jerks and they're two different things. Jerks are just jerks and they're just rude to anybody. They have no concern about it. And bullies are somebody who's like intentionally targeting someone specific. And there's a difference there. And so not every single thing is a bullying situation, especially in person. That kid, Jimmy, is just a jerk. That's all there is to it. I actually think that's a really, a really good point because you know, being in education, that yeah, I think the pendulum swung a little too far, and where it was everything's bullying, someone's mean to it, and the kid says this person's bullying me, and then the school takes it too serious, the parents take it too serious. Now they should. I'm not saying they shouldn't take it serious, right. but it just might not be a case yeah. of bullying. It might be just that Jimmy's <laughs> or in my case, Jack is a jerk. But yeah, so I, I think you're right. I, I think it's important to differentiate. Also, it, it made me think of one of the things that I tell people or that I think about kind of out loud a lot is that if we treated people in person like we treat them online, like everyday normal folks, if you look at the comment section of, of anything or Facebook replies, could you imagine yeah. if we talked to each other like that in person? <laughs> like you better watch out. I'm going to come over there. And, you know, it's like, we don't do that. So we have that separation and it, it goes from everything, right? Like, so uh, when we're driving, we're more separated from the person mm-hmm. than when we're like walking next to someone. So when we're driving, someone cuts you off, you might be quick to flip them off. Well, when you're walking next to them, one, you're probably not likely to cut someone off because you're next to that person. It's more proximal. Yeah. And if you get cut off, you're probably not going to flip the person off. So it's just, I, I think the closer we get to someone, the more careful we are in not uh, being jerks. Yeah. So are we more careful because they're physically closer to us and we're afraid of what might happen? Or are we more careful because we can see the the human the capacity that they have and have more compassion for that? I, I think the latter. I You know, I think humans, for the most part, are good. Uh, I, I think we're good people who don't want to hurt other people. I'm, I'm talking more generally here that don't want to hurt other people that want to see people succeed and, and be happy. And I think when we're with people, those sort of natural tendencies come out. And then I think when we're separated by them, whether it's through driving a car or through social media, I think it's easier to just remove ourselves from that sort of uh, natural aspect. And I'll, and I'll say a lot of people wouldn't be surprised hearing me say this because I generally uh, it's somewhat pessimistic and negative, but I, you know, I think that people want to want to be good or are good. So interesting story. Uh, the other day, my wife and I went to the park to go for a walk and I reversed into a parking spot and got fairly close to the car that was next to me. And there was a woman in the car on the phone who was just giving me daggers the whole time. <laughs> and I was within the lines and she was closer to her line. And she was not pleased that I parked so close to her car. But as I got out of the car, you know, I smiled and said hello to her, even though she was on the phone and she just kept sending daggers my way. And I thought that was really interesting because typically when I smile at people, then they like their guard goes down and they're like, oh yeah, this person's friendly. And it did not work with that woman, Jeff. And she was still giving me daggers 
And I was like, man, is she going to like bang my car with her car door when, when I walk away? I wasn't sure. I came back. There was no paint from her blue car on my car, but it was just really fascinating to see how like, typically that's what I expect. I smile, people disarm themselves and, yeah. and we can be human with each other. And in this situation, I didn't see that, but online, that's where you can't smile and say, I, there no harm here. I was just parking my car. Like, Yeah. So that's really interesting. I always I do that uh, uh, as I've learned to kind of take my own medicine. That car example <laughs> is an interesting one is because I when I when someone's parked like a jerk, you know, like taking up two lanes, I used to just get really kind of like, what a jerk. Why is he doing that? What's come on? And now I realize that, you know what? I don't know. Maybe someone before him parked like a jerk and that was the only place that he could park. And so now I kind of try to take that different perspective. Uh, and, and I, and going back to our conversation, I think it's harder to take that perspective online as it is offline where you're in there, you're a real person in the everyday world. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And it, and it is much more challenging. You can't see the body language, the tone of voice, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting over this last year with the pandemic, with our kids home a lot more, we've had a lot more conversations about body language, about tone and things like that, because we're seeing it way more than before. And it's only with us, you know, it's not like you're, you're experiencing 30 other kids in a classroom. Um, and it's been really interesting to see that. I, I want to talk a little bit about, about the dangers of kids having technology, them texting messaging each other, getting on social media platforms and things like that, and specifically what we in school should be doing to prevent the violence that comes along with that. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. You know, on the Cybertraps podcast, we talked about sexting and about electronic sexual assault and those kind of things. And, you know, we could talk a little bit about that, but but I wanted to talk about some of the dangers and what can we do in schools specifically where we're not the parents, we're not the ones who who have authority over this kid in the same way that a parent does. You know, kids get a cell phone, they bring it to school, and we pretty much don't get to have a say in that. <laughs> we can have policies that say no phones, but kids are going to ignore those. So, So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, and I, I think we, last one, we did the last podcast, it was during the pandemic. Right? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, and I probably said this then, and I'm going to repeat it now before we sort of get into the dangers of it. I am not a doom and gloom about technology and social media like a lot of my colleagues are. 
you know, I think that this generation, and I, I assume I said this on the last podcast, but I, this generation is the smartest generation that has ever lived. Uh, and the generation after them is going to be even smarter. That's just how it works historically. And it just so happens that this generation has the world at their fingertips that they, and for better or worse, that they are more knowledgeable or have access to more knowledge than any previous generation, right? So uh, I, I think that's important to uh, say that there are a whole lot of benefits and advantages to the technological world and social media and texting and all that. You know, this this is... You know, just speaking kind of specifically, there is uh, uh, maybe LGBT kids or questioning kids that now get to question that sexuality in a safe space, in a safe manner. There's shy kids that get to uh, have uh, communicate a little bit easier, practice how to communicate with people. There are tons of really cool stuff like Minecraft that you can play with other people that, you know, that the relationships can grow online. I, I think one of the things that was a bit of a uh, silver lining, I don't know if that's the right word, but of the pandemic is that the kids, yes, they're terribly affected by the pandemic. It has sucked for them, sucked for everyone, for us, for every, everything. But they were better at managing the relationships than we were. You know, especially at the beginning, they're used to talking to people online and to forming relationships and maintaining those relationships online. Whereas people like you and me were doing stupid things like board game nights and and cocktail hours, and, and it was awkward and weird and and kind of dumb and forced and contrived. But with them, they kind of didn't skip a beat with that. You know, I, my kid, uh, you know, plays video games quite a bit, and he is social with his friends. They they each have their headphones and they talk to each other while they're playing video games. I don't see that as a whole lot different from when I was in high school and playing uh, Nintendo when yeah. my friends were over at the house. Totally. So I, I, I just want to say that before we go into kind of the doom and gloom. Now, that being said, you know, there, there is some really good research that, that screen time, especially poor quality screen time, uh, is negative. And then, of course, it opens us up to new, new forms of abuse or are able to extend their abuse online. You know, it used to be the case that, uh, you know, I'd go home after school and I'd go hang out with my mom and make dinner or hang out, play video games with my brother and be done with friends and, you know, don't have to worry about those high dopamine situations. Whereas now the kids are kind of on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They always have to be kind of cool. You know, I have to have to preserve that image, that sort of thing by, by social media. So I think that that is just that pressure all the time. And then what I said about, you know, the, the abuse can extend beyond the school day. So a kid can, if you're in a relationship, you know, that you can be threatened with abuse at any any minute of the day. Uh, uh, you can be coerced or forced to send naked pictures any time of the day, all that sort of stuff. It just, it, it, it extends everything. So it does open up new avenues and then opens up new avenues as well from perpetrators that you would have never have contacted. Yeah. So one of the things that I've seen is that the good and the bad is just amplified by technology. And so is somebody who is, you know, building relationships and is outgoing and fun and all those, the good things we want our kids to be on in person is going to be pretty much the same online. And it's going to amplify that. And those who are the opposite, um, it's going to amplify that as well. And they're, they're able to find corners to hide in and to, to do the negative things that they do. And it's easy to see the doom and gloom, especially in a protective approach 
of how do we keep our kids safe? It's easy to focus on the doom and gloom. And I appreciate you saying that we need to recognize all the positive. And, and you're right about the kids not missing a beat because it was like, oh, I only get to play Xbox after school with my friends. Because of the pandemic, I now get to play Xbox during school with my friends because we have the Zoom sitting over here <laughs> and we're, we're meanwhile playing Call of Duty or whatever. So it, it's funny how that works. Yeah, yeah. My kid definitely did that. At least he was playing chess on his other computer, I guess. This is a quick story. He was, uh, he, he's usually a really good student. And uh, we got an email from a, several of his teachers like, uh, Asher's not doing anything. And we're like, what, what's going on? And he was, he was, co- he didn't have COVID, but he had to stay home because someone close to him had COVID. And we thought he was up in his room working the whole time because we'd go up there and he's working. And he goes, well, I haven't been doing too much, but I've gotten really good at chess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I, I, maybe I'm not the best person to talk about this stuff. But yeah, I, I, you know, I think that that's right. Uh, you mentioned something that, that, that struck my interest uh, is uh, when you said, talked earlier about, uh, you know, kind of what do we do? What do we, you know, they, these phones are ubiquitous. They, they're on all the time. I do think it is a mistake to police them. I, I think they're smarter than us. Uh, I think they're, uh, they're like, I say this all the time, they're like little terrorists. That they're smarter than us. They're going to figure out a way to do it, to get online, to play video games. They, they just will. They'll, if you take their phone away, they'll borrow their friend's phone that has Wi-Fi connectivity. They're, they're not dumb. And they're people. We need. We should respect them as humans and give them some agency and the best way to approach it. Uh, and I'm not naive. I get that that doesn't always work. Uh, so my couple points there is I think from a uh, knowing that we're it's difficult to police them, knowing that what you said is that uh, going back to kind of the offline and online, the line being blurred between the two, that the the good kids are going to be good kids online and the kids that are destructive will find new ways to be destructive online is uh, since we might have a difficult time policing that and managing that, I think we need to start working on that foundations of relationships and relationship skills before they get there. So to teach all kids how to be good, how to be in a positive relationship. And And that's not a pie in the sky approach. We know what healthy relationships look like and we know how to teach healthy relationship skills. Uh, and I, and I do think strongly believe that schools have that as a responsibility. I mean, they, they have obviously reading, writing, arithmetic, sports, arts, everything else. And those are extremely important, but if we don't teach them those social skills, those relationship skills, then they're not going to be, be able to excel in those other activities. So I really think it comes down from a prevention standpoint is in a promotion standpoint is that we need to focus on teaching these kids healthy relationship skills before they come bad kids. So that way it doesn't matter if they're online. It doesn't matter that if in 10 years we have this, uh, some other crazy technology where we can transport or something like that. It doesn't matter. We don't have to catch up and play whack-a-mole every, every few years with a new Snapchat or new social media uh, you know, if we could just teach them how to be good people and have good relationships, no matter where they are, or what they're doing, that's where I think we need to focus on. I, I would like to talk with you more about that. So I, I don't want to get us off track, but the other thing is meeting kids where they are uh, and where they are is on phones. And so let's figure out how that we 
how we meet them where they are and educate them using what they're going to continue to use. Yeah, I, those are both really great points. And, and I, I want to go back to the first one also, because the things that we use to teach kids relationship skills in the past have been things that were stopped because of COVID. Extracurricular activities, electives, sports, things like that. Those are things where we stripped those away because of the fear of the coronavirus. And that's a very real issue that we have to recognize and grapple with that we made the decision to take those things away for good or for worse. And that was a main area where those skills were taught. And this is where I think it's so important that the this relationship skills be taught explicitly and in context, because you have to have an understanding of both of those avenues. You can't just say, you know, be a good person. That means something different to everybody. And so you have to be able to say, here's an example of where you were a good person. Here's an example of where you were not a good person. Which one of those made you feel better? Which one of those made you feel like you were contributing positively? What does that mean? And like having those discussions and, and that's where, you know, the role of sports in particular has really been beneficial in teaching those things. And it's my personal opinion in schools that we need to do a lot more of that rather than focus so much on the academic piece. The academic piece is going to come by virtue of kids growing and learning and figuring things out, but that relationship piece doesn't necessarily come. So what are some strategies that you have to teach those relationship skills uh, intentionally? Yeah. Uh, and it's a really great point. I, you know, I, we were doing a bad job of teaching relationship skills before the pandemic and the pandemic has made our, our, our bad job exceptionally bad. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, even, even if you think about like my programs, my prevention, my healthy relationship programs can't be taught because, you know, we, we, uh, uh, their focus is online and schoolwork and understandable. Everyone was making sacrifices, but yeah. I, and then you miss like when we do focus on sports, which is an extreme as, as a former baseball player myself, uh, and team player and all that, that's extremely important. Our theater, our band or whatever. Uh, and, and taking that away is detrimental. And also though, I would say that there's, you know, there's a good percent. I don't know the percent, but I'm guessing 40% of kids that aren't involved in any of that stuff. So we also need to reach them through these programs. So specific to your question, uh, you know, in the program that, that I work closely with is called fourth R reading, writing, arithmetic, the fourth R stands for relationships. And that is an actual, so we don't do this didactic approach where this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is what an unhealthy, you know, they actually do role plays. And so they role play breaking up with someone. They role play uh, how to, uh, how to apologize, how to, resolve a conflict online with someone, you know, they role play by texting each other about how they can resolve this misunderstanding or something. So that in in a non-abusive, non-violent way, and those role plays are extremely important because they get to practice it live. And so then when it happens in the real world, they've already practiced it. Right. I mean, think about the way we teach a lot of these kids about socio-emotional skills and then we expect them to do it in the real life, the real world without them practicing it. It's kind of stupid. Like, could you imagine if we taught basketball that way, like the whole day where, okay. And so you dribble like this, the person, and you have a drawing or whatever, and this is where you shoot it. 
And you do that for six weeks and then you give them a basketball and say, okay, go play and expect them to be good at it. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So we have to, but what that means is we have to take up valuable school time to run this, you know, an assembly doesn't work. It actually could make things worse. A, a red ribbon week where we focus on substance use doesn't work. You know, with having a guest speaker in from the local violence shelter to talk about dating violence doesn't work. It has to be this dose response. We have to have a high dose, just like we do with medicine, in order for it to have the appropriate response, which in this case is healthy relationships, uh, you have to have a strong dose. So that means at the very least, a semester of healthy relationship skill building. But, you know, in an ideal world, we would make this part of the curriculum, part of elementary school, middle school, high school. But that's policy change, right? That's taking away some other things. That's taking away a, an English class or a math class or something. So it, it that is a tall ask. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is important. It has to start really from the womb to death relationship health and and that might mean working with the pregnant mom and the uh, and the father on healthy relationships so that when that kid is born, they immediately get a positive role model. Yeah, well, and that example perfectly illustrates what I was going to say next, which is that if you're not going to overcome the culture that exists in the home. And so if the home does not have a healthy relationship to begin with, it doesn't matter how much you do that at school. If the kid goes home and is reinforced with a negative relationship at home, then that's going to that's going to dissolve all the work that you did. And some kids will be able to overcome that. But, you know, we learn first and foremost from our parents. And so they're going to internalize those lessons from their parents, whether they're examples or explicit teaching about how you treat other people. And that's that's where I think like so one of the things that I'm big about is student driven learning and students being in charge of their own learning, having projects that they're working on and how those projects give them opportunities to practice these skills in real life. So when you are working with someone, you need them to do something. How do you ask someone to do something that you yourself could do, but it'd be better for somebody else to do it? How do you give direction? How do you receive direction? How do you work on a team? All those things need to be experienced for you to be able to, to understand them. Like your basketball example, and, and another example of that is how to ride a bike. You don't learn how to ride a bike by understanding how it works and the dynamics and, and physics of it all. You have to actually get on there and feel what it feels like to balance. And that is, there's only one way to do that, and that's by physically feeling it. And so, you know, we have a lot of online learning and, and things like that that are that are great, but a lot of times you have to actually experience it for you to be able to learn it in the way that you'll actually remember it and pay any attention to it and be able to apply it later in life. I really love that idea of experiential learning. You know, we do it at the medical school here. We are one of the first folks to do what's called problem-based learning where the, the you know, when I, I say when I teach it, I don't really, I'm there as a facilitator that the students lead everything and problem solve and put people on charge. And it really bolsters this idea of critical thinking and delegation and all that stuff that you're talking about. And we do it successfully with medical students. There's no reason we can't do it with undergrads, high school students, middle school students, elementary school students. I love it. And I'll go a step further even with the, uh, with the you know, witnessing that uh, if, you, if you witness violence at home or even just poor relationships at home, 
it's very difficult to overcome that by a school, especially if it's not a big dose. It's nearly impossible to overcome that. But I'll go a step further and say that, you know, oftentimes we're at schools that are really depressed uh, in the neighborhood economically. And these kids, you know, as much as I love my programs, these kids go home and they're worried about where they're going to stay that night, whether or not they're going to get shot, whether or not they're going to have enough to eat. They don't care about, and they shouldn't care. They don't have time or the energy to care about healthy relationships or how to break up with someone. They're just trying to survive. So I, I think a lot of this stuff is going to have to happen at the policy level at the, at, you know, giving paying livable wages and affordable housing and, and, and nutrition and all that before we can even hope to approach it. Yeah. It, it's like so many things that I feel like education is, is that we're trying to slap a bandaid on the other bigger social problems of the world and not really addressing those issues. And, and, and I mean, we still, and they're not even giving a bandaid. Right. You have to yeah. find the bandaid yourself. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So you still gotta, you still gotta try to put that bandaid on even when you know that it's not going to do anything because the alternative is to not do anything. And yep. that's, that's no good either. So my final question for you, Jeff, is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? This week, I would say generally be open to the idea of instituting a policy that talks more about healthy relationships and healthy relationship curriculum and bringing something in. Now, that's, I think, a bigger idea. So it's more generally. So this week, I think it is modeling the relationship you want kids to have and modeling that with your assistant superintendents, your principals, the staff, custodians, coaches, teachers, model that relationship that you want the kids to have with each other. And you and I both know that there's administrators out there. As, as you know, as you put in the thing, I was on the school board. There's uh, some administrators there that could use some healthy relationship programming as well. So I, I think that uh, the problem is, this goes back to everything, is the principals that hear this and will do it were probably already good. And the principals that hear this and worked will not listen to it. This is yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is true. And that is, this is the problem with so many things that we try to implement. So uh, Jeff, this was great. Where do people get the, the fourth R curriculum? Where can they go to find that? Uh, if they go to the website, it's a, it's a curriculum that was developed in, in by uh, researchers in Canada that I'm close with, uh, but they can find all the information on our website, which is www.utmb.edu forward slash CVP as in Center for Violence Prevention. Okay. So I got a link to that in the show notes so people can check that out. And Jeff, once again, thank you so much for being here and the work you're doing is fantastic. Also want to encourage everybody to check out the cyber traps episode uh, that I did with you because we talked about a whole bunch of other stuff too. So thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, middle school principals, what if I told you that all your teachers had to do to teach your students really valuable social and emotional competencies was just press play? In Control SEL is a fully automated video curriculum that teachers and students absolutely love. And that's because it's easy. 
and it looks just like a Netflix or a YouTube show. So all you have to do to hear about how it can completely transform your school is schedule your call. Tell us Jethro sent you and you'll get 20% off if you feel like it's a good fit. So go now to www.incontrolsel.com slash strategy call to schedule your call today. The link will be in the show notes. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.